and welcome to another exciting episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette, the world's best Murder, She Wrote podcast. I'm your co-host, Bridget Keyes. And I'm TJ West. And today we are talking about Season 3, Episode 18, No Laughing Murder. TJ, you want to give us a summary? Sure. So in this episode, we have basically what amounts to a Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis, like, ripoff, because we have this, you know, aging pair of former comedy partners who have had a very acrimonious falling out. But as it turns out, much like in our fair Verona, where we set our stage, they- Fair Verona? (laughs) We have their two children who are going to be getting married. However, during the course of their meeting at Camp Hiawatha, I think it is, it's a Borscht Belt sort of resort that one of them owns. One of them gets stabbed, someone ends up being hanged. And of course, Jessica, who knows everyone in the world, shows up and has to just figure out who it is that committed said murder. So, it's a good summary to get us started. It's a pretty good summary. So, I have to say, I love this episode. I loved it oh. um, much more than I thought I would, actually. I mean, I've seen bits and pieces of it with my parents before, but I don't know that I've sat down and watched it all the way through. But the minute that we have the lead in, which is in the black and white, and we have a lot of still photography, and we have the voiceover of these two comedians bouncing off of each other. I immediately thought, oh, okay, I see what we're doing. We're doing a Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis dynamic, which mm-hmm. if you don't know about them, I'm sure you've heard the names. Of course, Dean Martin, most famous as a singer, but also noted as an actor. And Jerry Lewis, the comedian, had a very successful run of films um, in the age of classic Hollywood, were notorious like a, as being a really great comedy duo. And a lot in the vein of, say, like Abbott Costello or Laurel and Hardy. And they were just enormously successful. But they had, you know, they gradually had a falling out and didn't speak to one another for like 20 years or some shit. And so it's very clear that that's the dynamic that these two characters that we see in Murder, She Wrote are drawing on. And I think that that's the very clear intertext that we're dealing with. So this was um, before Dean Martin was associated with like the Rat Pack. Yeah. That's really interesting. And we have Buddy Hackett and Steve Lawrence. We do. Playing the duo in this. Um, Buddy Hackett is Murray and Steve Lawrence plays Mac, who's the one who's uber successful. He's a singer and he has a TV show. So he's clearly the the Dean Martin character. Mm-hmm. Buddy Hackett is very clearly like the sort of Borscht Belt Jewish comedian. That's the sort of vein that we're drawing on here. Why don't you tell people what that is in case they don't know about the Borscht Belt? So we might have some younger viewers, and of course, I'm also too old, too young to know, like, to have experienced the height of the Borscht Belt. But the Borscht Belt was a sort of string of comedy clubs and Jewish resorts in the Catskills, um, which were very popular in the post-war period, particularly for cultivating comedic talent. Now, it is true that some younger viewers might know the Borscht Belt from The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, That's which true. a lot of the action in Mrs. Maisel takes place in the Borscht Belt. But, you know, Buddy Hackett himself was a product of the Borscht Belt. Many prominent Jewish comedians got their start there. And so it became sort of well-known for cultivating that kind of talent. And But unfortunately, with the rise of air travel in like the 60s and 70s, it gradually faded in importance. So a lot of the old resorts that were often quite opulent fell into disrepair and burned down and have been, long been abandoned. I've actually traveled through the Borscht Belt. I did my grad work in central New York, not far from the Catskills. So it was kind of cool to drive through and see these very extensive properties, many of which have been either closed or are now converted to like Hebrew schools for Orthodox communities in New York City. So I 
know a lot about the Borscht Belt. That's so awesome. I could talk about that all day. No, I mean, it's really important to like the legacy of American comedy and especially Jewish American comedy. Um, and it was interesting that they're picking up on that here. I mean, we see that we are in someplace called Coopersville, New York. Yeah. Um, where, as you said, where Murray has his sort of hideaway that is crumbling in disrepair and he can't, he has no money, can't keep it going. And it's, and we, we know that we're sort of removed from civilization because there's only one police officer who's like 12 years old and has no idea what he's doing. Uh, and Jessica essentially has to lead the investigation. So let's talk about that police officer for just a minute. Cause you know, mm-hmm. even in the annals of incompetent law enforcement, <laughs> that have graced murder she wrote i think this one has to take the cake because not only is he an interim <laughs> police chief which by the way the fact that this obviously like maybe 19 or 20 year old as a police chief is terrifying i mean he's so young he's like he like has like so young because he has like this untidy mop of like blonde curls these wide blue eyes and it's just like what is happening like what i know that we're in the middle of nowhere in new york but even so that's pretty Pretty scary. <laughs> and you know what? What I like, though, is that you and I also often make fun of Jessica being pretty terrible at trashing crime scenes and tampering with evidence and generally making it so that these these murderers will never be convicted, um, as we've complained about a lot. But when she has a police officer like this, she sort of rises to the occasion, right? So he's like about to touch evidence and she's like, oh, here's a handkerchief. Don't get your fingerprints on it, you know? And she's like, you know, that you should probably start an investigation with the clues. <laughs> like, it just it gives her a chance to be um, reasonable and show that she actually does know what she's doing compared to this nincompoop. Yeah, that's a very good way of describing him as a nincompoop. Oh, God. At one point, he says his mom is going to help because there's nobody else to help with the investigation. It's like, I can send my mom to look at it. I mean, that does sound like a lot like small town New York, but <laughs> you know, upstate New York, that definitely does sound very on par. With these kind of isolated communities. <laughs> My apologies to any listeners we might have in the Catskills. I know. So um, we should explain, though, who is dead. So we have, like, a uh, an attempted murder. The first night that Jessica's visiting, um, Murray comes screaming out of his room, and he's been stabbed in the back. Mm-hmm. And so we have to figure out who's trying to kill him, because the obvious choice is that Mac has done it, because Mac did stab him in the back by going on to be successful and he's not anymore um and we later find out that actually murray set the whole thing up to frame mac inspired by of all things is a robert montgomery movie right like he's talking about i don't i I had to look to see which movie he's referenced if it in fact exists but that does sound like a contrivance from like a 1940s movie so yeah you apparently you just wedge a knife in the door jam and then you back up into it Easy peasy. No problem. So, but in the course of them investigating who was attempting to kill Murray, their talent agent, is that what he is? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I would assume so, yeah. He's like their agent. Their agent ends up being found hanged in the pantry. Um, And so the police chief thinks it's because he felt so guilty that he tried to kill Murray. But, of course, it turns out that... It's because he found out their business manager was embezzling funds from them. And that sucks because Murray is like totally broke mm-hmm. and didn't realize that they were actually making millions on selling their video cassettes of their old routines. Yep. But then the agent found out. And so the business manager killed him. Right. Which, I mean, there's a fascinating, you know, the sort of the, the reason for the murder, the videotapes and like the the 
success of those on the market is just so one of those another fascinating moment in birdie she wrote that is really tapping into the technology of the age mm-hmm. like you know the birth of videotape and like the explosion of vcrs it's a whole new market for these guys right it's just fa- i mean it's really one of those brilliant moments where the murder she wrote writing team really outdoes themselves being so topical without making like bludgeoning you in the head with it mm-hmm. you know it's i think it's just really expert the way they are so able to historicize their own tv show you know mm, sure yeah yeah self-historicization in the murder she wrote canon it's another go. essay it's another essay yep <laughs> i'm telling you so, it's a cottage industry it's a cottage industry um shall i call it lansbury studies or like what well, are we gonna call it i mean maybe murder she wrote is this uh, Lansbury studies within within which there are several subfields? Like there's the murder she wrote contingent. There's the you know the classic Hollywood, the classical Hollywood people. There's probably a bunch of like uh, gay theater dudes too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on now. There's like Marilyn Monroe studies. Why isn't there Angela Lansbury studies? Well, if there is, I need to be the president of the organization. So nobody take that idea. Well, that, that's what our fan convention is for. That's where we'll give birth to Lansbury studies. I know. Okay. Let's talk, can we just talk about, like, people? Because, like, I thought the episode yes. was kind of boring and the murder was kind of dumb. And, and um, really, it's just about the people, right? It is about the people. And I have to say that I love Buddy Hackett's, like, excessive performance. Like, there's something very, like... Do you? I find him so annoying to watch. He is annoying, but in that brash, abrasive way that is sort of endearing at the same time. Like Uh it's it's very like it's very Borscht Beltian, like just sort Uh of very rough and you know, as I said, abrasive is the word I would use because he can be very get on you know nails on a chalkboard sometimes. He's very over the top, and his eyes are kind of wonky. Um, he's kind so of he pudgy. He has like bizarre. a very lumpy face. Like he looks kind of <laughs> like a potato. Belly? Remember Pizza Belly from a couple of episodes yes, ago? Yes. He does have a similar physiognomy to Ernest Borgnine. I would never, to be clear, I would never <laughs> call anyone that. Okay. I'm just laughing at the idea of Harry McGraw calling someone that. <laughs> Pizza Belly is my favorite pejorative ever. But I think, I think what we're saying though is like there's different kinds of comedians, right? And like comedians who have a sort of um, – less than idealized beauty physique tend to be like physical comedians, Mm -hmm. right? And you use your body for humor. And I think he does that. Um, And sometimes I'm like, please stop and just be normal. And that's why it freaks me out. Yeah. And I mean, Buddy Hackett, you know, if you've ever seen him in other films, like it's a mad, 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 mad world or um, the love bug, or even in his like vocal performance as Scuttle and the Little Mermaid, which most millennials would be if they if they know buddy hackett as anything it's that that would be only two years after this yeah so my grandma knew who buddy hackett was i was like i don't know who that is as a kid i was like okay but (laughs) he's one of those people whose names i always knew like just somehow i just always knew buddy hackett was like a famous comedian Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i mean that's what's so fascinating though it's like you know that's the fascinating intertext you know with him as the sort of jerry lewis stand-in but also, you know, drawing on his own Bush Belt roots. His own life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's a really fascinating sort of intertextuality going on with his performance here that's, you know, even aside from its sort of annoying aspect, is just fascinating in its own right. Well, I'd also think it makes for an interesting relationship with Jessica. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, this is, interestingly, like Stage Struck, one of the episodes where we learn that um, Jessica has lots, Jessica has really great connections and famous friends before she was even a famous author, right? Because right. in Stage Struck, those famous actors, she was friends with when she was in college. And 
Um, she's friends with Buddy Hackett's character because she went to school with his wife. Like we see a picture of them graduating together. Um, so that's just an interesting note, I think, to, that mm-hmm. she has, you know, anyway, I guess she's a Nepo baby, to put it she in is. today's terms. Yep. Um, but their dynamic, I think, is so interesting because we see her with Seth, who ribs her and is hard on her. Or we see her with people who treat her with lots of respect and sort of as if she's a, a sort of figure of grace. And he, mm-hmm. Buddy Hackett, throws his arm around her and calls her an old broad. And I don't think we've ever seen anyone treat her like that. Yeah, it's kind of interesting to sort of, you know, puncture the the, the level of reverence mm-hmm. with which Jessica is usually treated in some form or another. It's closest perhaps to Harry McGraw, who also kind of has that more informal relationship with her. I don't That's know. That's true. If anyone were to call her an old broad, it would probably have to be... Harry McGraw. Oh, I feel like she might punch him if he did that, though. <laughs> yes, probably. <laughs> but this one, she just laughs, you know. And then Steve Lawrence as Mac, I thought, was also really interesting um, mm-hmm. because he has such a long Hollywood career of his own with his wife, Edie Gourmet. Right. Do you want to explain a little no, bit? No. Mostly what I know about them is from I Love Lucy and We Love Lucy. Oh, we do. <laughs> And mostly what I know about classical Hollywood, honestly, comes from I Love Lucy. I'm not going to lie. Right. I mean, that's where I learned that these people were famous, right? It was like Lucy would encounter them and like idolize them. And I was like, oh, oh, Steve Lawrence must be somebody famous. Edie Gourmet must be somebody famous. Yeah. I mean, I like Lucy personally, but I'm riffing on the Golden Girls, of course. I see. Okay. But speaking of the Golden Girls. Well, I was just going to say, are we done with Steve Lawrence? Should we move on to the big, the big one? Yes, Cherie North. Oh, you were to say George Clooney. Yeah. Okay, well, tell Sorry, me what I, you're thinking about Cherie North. I love Cherie North. I Every time I see her come up in an episode, whether it's on Gunsmoke or The Golden Girls, where she plays Blanche's sister, Virginia, like, she's one of those people who, you know, you recognize, but not necessarily, like, know who she is. But I just find her, like, captivating yeah. as a figure, as, you know, as a character actress. But also there's something very aristocratic about her features and like also the way that she delivers her lines there's a certain like faint whispery uh-huh. delicateness to her delivery that i just find you know absolutely rapturous yeah, I, know what you mean. I like yeah. i like women stars it's and even though she's a relative small like, small role here i still find her to be just fun to watch why don't you explain what her role is in the episode she's basically like um buddy hackett's character's love interest well yeah and i think what is adorable is at the end um, of course, of course, the episode has to have him, Mac and Murray, um, you know, reconcile. And Murray appears on Mac's TV show and he makes an announcement that he's going on a honeymoon. And then mm-hmm. we cut to her backstage with Jessica and she's like, honeymoon, honeymoon. And she starts shaking people and jumping up and down as she realizes because the honeymoon would be with her and he wants to marry. It means he wants to marry her. And it's really cute. She's just like, honeymoon and like shaking everyone. Especially since she was just talking about finding a potential suitor on the Champs-Élysées in Paris. Like, yeah. you know, it's just it's a really cute it's way cute. to end the episode. Mm-hmm. Like, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. And our freeze frame is then all everybody laughing at mm-hmm. her and with her. It's very cute. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so now can we go to Clooney? Of course we can go to Clooney. How did we, I mean, how, 15 minutes into this episode and we haven't mentioned that this episode guest stars young George Clooney. And I find George Clooney's star text and career 
absolutely fascinating. You know, because now, of course, he's one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. Like, he's one of the last, like, great movie stars yeah, of, the, of, our, of our current Hollywood. Like, mm-hmm. he's a star. He's not he's just an star. actor. He's mm-hmm. a star. But, you know, nowadays it's impossible to divorce him from, like, you know, O Brother, Where Art Thou? Or any of the work he's done recently, like, you know, subsequently, after even after that, like, in these big movie roles. Like, he is an A-lister. But, you know, he gets his start on TV, like, in guest roles in The Golden Girls. and Guest stars um, on this, guest starring on Roseanne. Roseanne. Like, it, before, you know, even becoming a hit on us, on ER. It's just so fascinating to see George Clooney, the George Clooney. The George Clooney. And that was TV. Yeah. Yeah. When he was basically I mean, but, a nobody. But he's so handsome. Oh, my gosh. He is he's so, so handsome and cute. And he's, like, I think even at this stage, and maybe it's just, you know, sort of retroactive viewership but you could still sense that there's something there like he's got it he's got that elusive intangible to be a star Mm -hmm. i mean because his co-star who's the sort of you know the okay so we should explain we should explain he plays max's son he does yeah who is engaged to murray's daughter and so the reason everyone has reunited at murray's estate is because we're celebrating this engagement that their parents think is the end of the world yes I mean, Murray certainly thinks it's the end of the world, much mm-hmm. more so than Mac. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, these two kids, Kip and Corey, the, the the son and daughter. What ridiculous names. They don't really do anything. I mean, this is – I know that we always talk about the Golden Girls, but can we talk about the Golden Girls just for a second? Because I think yes. we need to do a really detailed comparison of Clooney's episode of the Golden Girls and Clooney's episode of Murder, She Wrote to explain the egregious oversight on behalf of the writers. Yes. So in Murder, She Wrote, like, as you say, he's just kind of like an accessory. Like, he's just a plot contrivance to get everyone there. I mean, he has like five lines of dialogue, maybe. Yeah. And most of them is just yelling at his girlfriend for thinking that his father's, you know, capable of stabbing Murray. Right. Like, that's mostly what his dialogue consists of. Whereas in The Golden Girls, where he is the younger part, part of a pair of cops that come to help apprehend some jewel thieves that have taken up residence next to the to the girls he has a much more like much more to do for one thing he bonds with blanche because she reminds him of his son he gets injured whilst you know uh trying to take down the jewel thieves like there's a so lot they all have more to mother for... him and love him yep and, but also know, they're attracted to him it's yep. like it's just such a layered i think way of using this guy who's like a young actor who's obviously devastatingly handsome when you have an older woman and i'm not necessarily saying that jessica should have been fawning over him or anything i would have paid good money I'm to just see saying that like <laughs> maybe she did backstage but i'm just saying that like like if you are looking for is clooney going to be somebody famous in the future i think you can look to that golden girls episode and be like oh that's a star in the making mm-hmm. he's background in yeah. this it's a tragedy it is especially because he looks so much i think he looks even handsomer in this than he does in the golden girls like he's he's for one thing his hair is done better so why is he so cute i know he's i was like i don't even like boys and i just he's swoony i mean i love boys and i really loved him in this yeah so that was pretty exciting we had george clooney yeah so it was an embarrassment of riches when it came to the guest actors you always say that. So it can't be an embarrassment of riches if it's like every other episode. I don't always say that. I didn't say that about last episode. No, it's like every other every other episode. Well, I mean, if there's an embarrassment of riches, then that's what it is. Well, I think it's – but my point is it can't be embarrassing anymore. It's just the default setting now. 
Don't be pedantic. Or it can't be riches. Maybe riches is the part we should change. Don't be pedantic. It's an embarrassment of normal normal casting. It's an embarrassment of grace notes is what it is. <laughs> oh, my God. Combining my two affectations into one. Okay, Teach, can we talk style for of course. a second? We don't often talk about cinematography and directing we and don't. stuff. Um, and what the hell was going on in this episode with all the zooms. Yeah, there were a lot of zoomings. I mean, if you should never zoom. It's cheesy. Mm-hmm. But like a slow, skillful zoom, you might be able to get away with if the audience doesn't really notice that it's a zoom. We are talking about like someone just got their hands on a Sony Handycam and is pushing the zoom button back and forth. Like it was totally out of control. And I'm bringing it up to be funny and like talk about it, but also like I do think as a viewer, if if I as if I'm trained in this, so I do notice it. But I think if your average home viewer is noticing the cinematography and editing, like for a TV show like this, something has gone wrong because you're not supposed to be thinking about it. You're supposed to get lost in the story, right? Yes, exactly. These zooms were out of control, weren't they? Yeah, there was a, a lot of excessive use of that particular stylistic choice and it's particularly like glaring in like network tv like you it, it's glaring enough in like cinema like but to see it in network tv is a little bit too ostentatious there's a thing in film studies where you say that what the camera shows us is supposed to be important right like you if something is in close-up it means it means something and the audience should pay attention to it mm-hmm. we had zooms here like jessica reaches for the canister of flour in the pantry and we zoom in on it Chekhov's close-up that that canister is not a clue and it had nothing to do with anything like why are we zooming what was this yeah say more don't just leave me to be the only one complaining about this yeah it's strange isn't it okay all right what else you got on this one so let's think about like Murray's attempt to stab himself. Like that's the obvious sort of that. That to me is more interesting than the murder. Mm-hmm. It's a really excessive route to go to break up your daughter and the son of your former business partner. Like it seems like, wow, it mm-hmm. says something deeply disturbing about this otherwise quite affable character. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think at a certain point, it's like, I understand that you guys don't like each other, but there's a a kind of immaturity that's being brought to the situation if you can't even get along well enough to have your to let your kids get married. Right. And just literally stab yourself and and do it when Jessica's there. I just I mean, the timing was such that he had to do it when Mac was there. So he can frame Mac. I get that. But I, I don't know, like he's unhinged. He's clearly this is that is not a normal thing a normal person would do. Like that's someone who needs to go to some therapy. It is true. And I do find that, like, it seems to me, and I think I alluded to this earlier, that, you know, Murray really has held on to the bitterness and let it, like, eat away at his mm-hmm. well-being. Like, obviously, his mental well-being, if he's willing to try to fake his own death. Not to mention, you know, I think we all know on a cerebral level that stabbing yourself is extremely painful. Like, getting stabbed is extremely painful. But, like, it takes a true effort of will to back into a knife. Do you think... I mean, if the knife is held steady and you just back up really fast, yeah, but- I you, I mean, you'd probably do it before you have a chance to, like, s- get squeamish and back out of it. Okay. You want to try it? Should we try it and see? 
you look as- you look askance at me every time I think of like, oh yeah, that's a good motive for murder. But yeah, you're like, well, I'm not talking about murdering someone. I'm just talking yeah, about like, like you know potentially accidentally killing yourself if you stab yourself in the wrong place. So it's you know it's not harming anybody but yourself. You're like, yeah, I could totally back into a knife. I like could I totally have totally like back into of- a knife. No big deal. Like, I mean, because there are all kinds of questions, like, how sharp is the knife? Are you sure that's going to – I mean, if it's not sh- – I know. And did he, did he like, do research on where he could do it that he would only have superficial wounds and wouldn't, like – because, like, what if he had accidentally, like, backed up into his kidney or something? Then he's going to die, right? Yeah, I mean, they're all I – mean, I have many questions about this whole scheme. Like, you know, I have mm-hmm. a lot of, like, serious – inquiries well and i think you know jessica as she's investigating the room and figures this out you know she sees that the there's like some chipping on the door frame and she's playing around with things and she figures out that there's a painting that's over a peephole that actually looks into mac's room so it's beyond just him like hurting himself to frame mac which is already like dude that's messed up it's like he's also been spying on this guy which is totally unethical and creepy and yeah, I don't think that, you know, at the end, we're supposed to think they've redeemed their friendship, and it's all fixed now. Um, and I don't think this is something that just like being on somebody's TV show is going to fix. Like this guy needs massive therapy. Not to mention the fact that he's like, daughter, can you ever, Corey, can you ever forgive me? And she's like, of course, daddy. Which, first of all, <laughs> I, I have, to, this is a pers- personal pet peeve of mine, but I find it deeply, deeply disconcerting when adult women refer to their fathers as daddy like i just find that to be because it should only be used in a sexual context well obviously but also i just think it's, i just think it's very creepy and very like you know homeschooly but anyway um and then she's just like i think oh, you've of course. probably never been a daughter trying to sweet talk your dad into giving you something that is a very accurate assessment i don't even call my mom like i mean i've obviously tried to sweet talk my mom but i don't call my mom mommy because oh I'm, i will call my parents mommy and daddy if i want something badly enough yeah and I'm oh, I, I think my well i mean my mom would be like what the hell is wrong with you like or she probably wouldn't be hell it'd probably be a different much more but I think the more important part of that statement is that she's like, I will just forgive you for attempting to bust up my engagement and, and kill yourself, yourself and frame your friend. No big deal. You're forgiven. Yeah. I mean, even by the standards of like murder, she wrote, it's like res- restoration of balance and like normality. It's like, whew, lots going on there. You know who I, f- I feel badly for Jessica, that first, the, the scene where they're all at dinner together. Because they're having this, like, dinner party, and these guys are so immature that they are throwing barbs at each other and being snide. And it's not fun for the agent or the business manager or Jessica. And she's, like, in this beautiful purple dress. She's just trying to be supportive of her friend's – her dead friend's kid getting engaged. And, like, these guys are so dreadful. And, like, they bust up the dinner party in the middle of dinner. People haven't even finished eating yet. I mean – it's like, get over yourself. You have guests in your home. Like, you... This is what I'm saying. This is what we said last episode. Like, the social... I don't want her to be friends with this guy, honestly. Yeah, the social niceties are meant to govern these situations. Like, you just put out a brave front and get on with it. Like... So he should have been more waspy is what you That's mean. exactly what I mean. Which, I mean, admittedly, <laughs> like, you know, they're clearly Jewish comedians, so that doesn't really work. But, you know. Do you think that the characters are supposed to be Jewish? I mean, I think Murray most certainly is. That's why he's in the mm. that's why he's in the Bush Belt. Like that's why he has opened his own club there. Yeah. Now I don't know about Mac. That Mac. Was, that one seems less clear cut. But you know, sometimes you know, just putting on a, a brave face can be enough. But I mean, it is interesting that you know you say they're shooting barbs at each other. It's clear that the reason they have such profound antipathy is you know there's no hatred so strong. Except for the one that comes from former friendship. Like, when a friendship and a partnership like that dissolves, like, it can really lead to extreme feelings. And so that, like, that part makes sense. 
Definitely. And I, I should clarify that it's mostly for Murray, right? I think Mac yeah. Mac definitely seems like better able to do the social grace thing for the sake of the kids. Yeah, he seems rather bemused by Murray's constant. But, like, you know, that tracks because Mac is still successful. He has a TV show. He is, He's still yeah. living the life. Murray is the one who's out in the boonies with no not enough money to keep his house heated. So of course right. he's the bitter one, right? So yeah, it, I thought that character-wise, you you know you said earlier that the murder itself didn't really land very well, but I think the character-wise, I think this is a really interesting episode in mm-hmm. terms of like exploring the dynamics of showbiz, in particular showbiz partnerships that can so quickly turn sour. I think it's kind of a boring episode. I'm not going to lie; it's not one of my favorites. I was kind of bored. Yeah, I didn't find it as captivating as, you know, si- Simon Says Paint Death or whatever it was, but... Um, <laughs> Simon Says Color Me Dead. I was close. I, I I will say that I didn't find this one as compelling plot-wise. Um, yeah. But I did find that at least the characters were the more interesting aspect. I mean, I thought it was pretty obvious at that first dinner party when they talked about videotape sales, that mm-hmm. what was happening, right? Because the guy is like, oh, yeah, we've re-released everything on video cassette. And then, oh, you should be making tons of money. And he's like, no, 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 nobody's making any money. You have to understand how this stuff works. And then he says some bullshit. That's not how anything works. You're you're not a financial whiz, are you? And it's just like, okay, that seems a bit obvious. Yeah, it was really obvious. I mean, it's almost like the, I think a a parallel to last week's episode, Simon Says, Mm -hmm. where like, you know, everyone's gathered around the table at some dinner party. And in that, we see all the interpersonal dynamics we need to figure out who's going to get murdered and why, basically, and who did it. And that, in that sense, it was very Agatha Christie-ish. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, everything, all the dynamics are laid out to, at the dinner party. Like, mm-hmm. dinner parties make for great murder, like, murder Is this um, why setups. people have abandoned having them now, do you think? Maybe Americans were like, look, dinner party always seems to end in murder. Maybe we should quit doing that. Yeah, I think so. I totally bring it back, but not the kind in this one. This This dinner party was pretty excruciating to watch. Dinner and death. Murder, she wrote, and the the politics of eating. You just write these essays if it if they're just coming to you left and right. Why don't you write these essays? Well, that's true. I could, yeah. but it's kind of your bailiwick more than mine. So oh, I'm just here to look a good. Word. I'm just here to look pretty <laughs> and make a few barbs here and there. Like that's my contribution to this. Oh my gosh! All right. Well, that's probably a good place to stop then because you probably need to, to go powder your nose. So. For the Cabot Cove Gazette, I'm Bridget. And I'm TJ. And we hope to God you'll come back next week for whatever the hell this is we're doing. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) We'll never be like them, TJ. We will always keep our comedy duo going. Yes. Our theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Common License. You can find us on social media. We are the Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.